Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajasad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists, and we have a lot of really cool thing, really cool things to talk to you about this week. Um, before we get to that, I'm going to ask Ben to plug a couple of his publications that he writes for. Uh, go for it, Ben. You can find my work at Inside Hook, at Motor Trend, and at Driving Line. And you can find my work at Autotrader.ca, Nouveau Magazine, and... Where was I again? The Drive. That was great. The Drive. This week I want to talk to you about um, a car that I hold very close to my heart. It is the Dodge Stealth, or also known as the Mitsubishi 3000 GT. Ben, Semi, why is this close to your heart? That's a very personal way to refer to a car. I absolutely love this car. I think it is one of the coolest designs from the 90s. It is a car that was like ahead of its, uh, ahead of its, just ahead of the curve, ahead of its time, I think is the best way to describe it, um, with the technology and the features that it had. I mean, back in the day, it had it just had so many things that really made it feel a little bit more exotic than it was. And, and I, I think, think that I think that's kind of why we're talking about it this week because the vehicle of all the cars from the '90s in that period, like the early '90s, to, I guess the, and there the, the are a, there sold. a lot of really good cars from that. Yeah, period. this and the Stealth was around until about '98 uh, in in 3000 GT form. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, of all the cars from that era, it really was the one that took all of the crazy nineties technology and put it in one place. And some of that technology isn't even nineties technology. It's, it's not like it was available elsewhere. I mean, some of the features were available on some other cars, but you never saw them together in the same way that Mitsubishi put them together on the 3000 GT. And then, you know, the, the rebadged Dodge stuff. I mean, it goes beyond the, the fact, just the fact that I had a twin turbo V6 under the hood that made that like made over 300 horsepower. We actually still have turbocharged six cylinders that hardly keep up to that number too, right? Like that are just now going crossing that figure. And we'll be talking about that later in the podcast. Um, and it had all-wheel drive, and and now we're seeing more and more um, sports cars with all-wheel drive. But there was even more to this car that I think made it so special and unique. Well, I think all-wheel drive is important because if you look at the supercars that it was competing against, the Toyota Supra, the RX-7, the 300ZX, I mean, and I say supercars, these were like um, – if that grouping of vehicles was able to challenge cars like the Ferrari F355 and the 348 and the Porsche 911 Turbo of the same era. Yeah. They were expensive because uh, at the time – it was right around the, the point where the Japanese bubble economy dropped and or sorry, popped, and all of a sudden the yen wasn't worth anything and they had to sell these cars for huge amounts of money in the United States to break even. So that's why these cars all died by the mid nineties for the most part. But uh they were still way less expensive than a nine eleven turbo or Ferrari. And they could mm-hmm. keep up. And that's pretty amazing. So I, I think all wheel drive it, the the stealth and the three thousand GT were the only all-wheel drive contenders from that group of cars. Uh, the 911 uh, Turbo, about, I believe, had all-wheel drive at that point as well. Maybe, and, But maybe stepping away from, from just a, a slight shift, what about like Skylines or something like that? Might, might do the I'm trick I'm talking well? about what was sold in North America. Oh, okay. I mean, if you I want understand. to broaden it to the world, then we're going to be looking at a lot more cars. But that right. cohort of cars that was exported, because right. uh, Nissan didn't export the GTR, but they did export the 300ZX. Which is also a pretty cool car, which had a twin turbo V6. Yes, and, but it didn't have all-wheel drive. So that's you know, one big point in the favor of the 3000 GT. 
I actually am. I'm impressed with this. I was looking at the stats for it. A stealth could hit uh, 60 miles per hour in about five seconds, in less than five seconds. Which That's is kind of crazy because it was a porky car. <laughs> it was heavy, right? I like, think it was like 3,800 pounds or something like that. Which right. was super heavy for the time. Nowadays, it's not. That's like a Mustang GT. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But a Mustang GT has way more power. Mm. In that era, I mean, for a car to be that heavy and be that quick, that was something else. And in a lot of ways, the, the GT and the 3000 GT name was accurate. It was a Grand Tour. In the same way, the Supra was a Grand Touring car and the, the ZX as well. These were cars that were comfortable and fast. Of that group, I'd say only the RX-7 was what you would consider a traditional sports car because it Mainly was lightweight. Yeah, because it was so lightweight and really responsive, right? Yeah. But it had that interesting engine. Anyway. Yeah. Interesting. Great word for it. Um, <laughs> in addition to powering all four wheels, though, there's a bunch of other stuff, like you said, that made the the Stealth unique. And part of that was four-wheel steering, Sammy. Um, yeah. This is something that Japan experimented with starting in, I guess, the mid-'80s where you could get passive or active four-wheel steering systems that would deflect the rear wheels to match or to um, be out of sync with the front wheels, depending on what you were trying to do. Right. So uh, the, I guess the most the most popular example from the, the early ones would be Honda Prelude, which had the 4WS system. But the right. I, actually, I'm sorry. I'm. Do you know? Can you explain 4WS to me easily? Or or well, off is... the top of my head, I think it was a passive system that had like one and a half degrees of deflection. Because okay. there's yeah. a lot of ways to do. Um, maybe not even that much because there's a lot of ways to do four wheel steering. You can even sort of set up suspension bushings in right. traditional suspension to deflect under certain conditions and to change the orientation of the wheel. So that's kind of a like a, a cheating way to do it. You can add what the Stealth had was a motor that would actually it was it was powered by I want to say how did how did it work exactly. Um, the system would it, it, it would tra- you could get it one and a half degrees of motion in mm-hmm. line with the front wheels. So okay, yeah. It, below thirty five miles an hour though, it didn't do anything. There's some four wheel drive four wheel steering systems where you get they opposite. Go counter, yeah, yeah, it goes counter, so you can park easily or or maneuver better in a tight space. But the Stealth didn't do that. It was just for improving stability at high speeds. And for giving you a little bit of an extra bite into a corner, but I think um, this is so funny about that that methodology. I always think that maybe four wheel steering will do that that sort of counter the front wheels thing to help improve, especially at low speeds, to help improve like turning radius or or some or you know that kind of handling, low speed handling. But to make the the rear wheels go in line with the front wheels, you end up. I guess what they describe it as is kind of extending the wheelbase of the car. Um, and improve stability in, in at high speed uh, and, lane changes or so. You know, uh, in that same t- era as the GT, not only did the Prelude have a system, but Nissan had this thing called Hikus, yep. which was a, a, a fairly well-developed four-wheel steering system. It wasn't popular with um, aftermarket guys. I remember back in the 90s and early 2000s, people would actively remove Hikus from their cars mm-hmm. because I guess it was just harder to to tune the suspension. I mean, you, you have that much more variable. Um, but modern cars that have four wheel steering, there's not a ton. The Porsche 911 does it now; it's available. Um, the Ferrari uh, GTC GT4 GTC Luso, I can never remember what it's called. <laughs> yeah, that has that has it available. Uh, it's 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 kind of a, a feature that you only really find. Active systems on high end cars these days, but the Stealth right. had it like th- twenty years ago, thirty years it's ago. Wild! So it's pretty impressive. Um, and then 
I want to go back to the all-wheel drive thing. It's so important that this car had all-wheel drive and so other so few other vehicles. Have we mentioned the Subaru? I don't know where where this thing kind of classifies whether it's a sports car or anything or something else. This SVX is that? What is that? It's that just a, a Grand Touring Coupe. That's did, what I would did say. That have a place among to be mentioned <laughs> alongside these cars? No, definitely really. not. <laughs> that but is, it had all-wheel drive. That was the other car that had all-wheel drive. No, it had it. Yeah, it, it. But it, you know, I mean, it the, had nothing else. <laughs> the Eagle Talon had all-wheel drive too, but it wasn't in the same class as the Stealth. Um, no. Uh, but if you want to talk about features that are interesting, um, <laughs> you can look at the. I certainly uh, do. <laughs> the the Stealth also had an electronically controlled suspension system years before insane. anything else did. That's um, insane. Some cars had this, some cars didn't, but not no car combined four wheel steering, four wheel drive, and electronically controlled suspension. It was not a super advanced system. It didn't do. It, it, it had two settings: comfort and sport. But it would um, change the rebound inside the shock to uh, in real time and you there was a, there was even i think a medium setting soft medium and hard not to comfort in sport sorry and um that feature is something that's commonplace today on so many cars but back then i mean it was it was a huge novelty and uh kind of doubling down on that it had a tunable exhaust you could make it louder or quieter which no other car really had back then i love it a was... car called the dodge stealth had a loud and quiet of mode. course of course <laughs> stealth they didn't, it loud. Keep, they didn't keep it forever. Uh, the Stealth lost it in the redesign for some reason. Um, and uh, the the other final feature I want to talk about with the Stealth that actually wasn't on the Stealth but only on the 3000 GT, it had movable aero. Active yeah, aero. active aero. In the, both in the front and rear of the vehicle, which yes, I think is they were, at, at above 45 miles an hour, the angles of the splitter and the wing, the spoiler on the back would change. Mm-hmm. In order to provide more downforce, so and I mean, fr- like a f- though I actually seen that front splitter, it kind of like drops. It's very, it's very interesting to see it happen. It's like, uh, it's like uh, you know those big giant uh, like plastic splitters that you see um, pickup trucks have. It's yeah. kind of like that. It's not that dramatic, but like this just shows up. It's like here I am, and it improves the the aerodynamic, which I think is cool. So you know, everyone was super impressed when the Boxster and the 911 started having pop up wings. Yeah, like spoilers on the back. Sorry, that would you know at certain miles an hour they would they would do that. I mean, the, the GT had that ten years beforehand, and it's really it's really not mentioned. You know that this car is it's all. I mean, like you said, the name is Stealth, flies under the radar, all the jokes you can make, but really it's a car that doesn't get a ton of respect. And I think a part of that is because it's just so damn hard to work on. Yeah, uh, so it has the world's tightest engine bay. Yeah, stuffing a twin turbo V6 here in this car was, was it, it took some contortion. It was origami essentially. Yeah, there's so, so much. There's so much going on under the hood. And they're not known for being super reliable. So you combine those two things together. If you have a car that's not very reliable but is also very difficult to work on, <laughs> like mm. those generally keep people away, which is too bad. Um, it's a car I don't think we're ever going to see it reaching the same heights at auction as a Supra or an RX-7. And uh, it's kind of fallen into the same pat- trap as the Nissan 300ZX, which is it's very fast, but maybe just a little too common to ever have a cachet. Interesting. I mean, I'm also a huge fan of the design. I think it's a very uh, impressive looking car that like really sports car or supercar-esque wedge. Um, and then there was the, the redesign with, where they got rid of the pop-up headlights as well. Really sharp looking car. Uh, truly, it's one of my favorites. I really wish I could, I could, you know, get the courage to buy one because and and oversee its its uh, its reliability and um, parts availability um, issues because I think they're absolutely killer cars. 
So uh, moving from one part to another, we had a sure. couple of uh, – we, we get some feedback from listeners that they liked when we hit on the pop culture stuff that we talk about from time to time. <laughs> so we have a couple of uh, movie car features we wanted to talk about this week. We're going to be, at the same time, looking at our 10 favorite – or not 10 favorite, but our favorite Mopars, movie Mopars, and our favorite movie Chevrolets. Okay, and, sure. Uh, I, I think some of these might surprise people because um, they're not as – like, you know, in, in Fast and Furious, there's a lot of Mopars. There's uh, the cool Mopar that Dom drives at the end of uh, Tokyo Drift when he's in the parking garage and he's somehow going to drift that giant roadrunner, yeah. like, which doesn't make any sense at all um, you know, inside that confined space. Then there's, of course, you know, the, the, the Charger that's been in every single movie. Yeah. Uh, except except the second one. It's not in that movie. Right. But uh, he's that. and then there's the there's the what 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 is it is a Cuda or a Challenger I can't remember offhand from the second movie that they win in the race. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a lot of Mopars in Fast and Furious, but we kind of want to talk about some other Mopars, Sammy. What, yes, what, please. Well, what would you bring up? Well, I think the one that you want to bring up, I want to bring up first, which is uh, Wraith, the Wraith, which is this 1986 movie which had a car. That was a concept, this M- Dodge M4S Turbo Interceptor. This was yes. a crazy cool car. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right, in our in our yeah. feature about um, concepts that we didn't get and we got something else that was maybe a little less interesting instead. Yeah. But, yeah, it's a super weird movie. The, the t- M4S Turbo Interceptor is in it. Charlie Sheen stars as a man who might be a car as well and also might be dead, but also apparently at the end is an alien. Yeah. Uh, the car itself could go 200 miles an hour. That's cool. Which is nuts. It was built in the early 80s. It looks amazing. And they did nothing with it. Yep. <laughs> so this is this is the enduring memory we're going to have is from this movie, The Wraith. I highly recommend you watch the movie. It's absurd. It's pretty violent. I mean, the kids, there's a lot of street racing deaths that didn't need to happen. But, I mean, revenge is a harsh mistress. <laughs> um, do you want to go, do you want to do a couple of Mopar cars and then go into the Chevrolet stuff? Or- yeah, let's do that. Okay. What about uh, Vanishing Point? I mean, I think that's an important car. That's uh, it's a it's a 1970 Dodge Challenger. Yeah, um, it's 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 important, but maybe a bit of a cliche at this point. I think. Yeah, I there's think that's two, fair. There's two there's two uh, versions of Vanishing Point. By the way, there's a remake for TV they did in 1997 starring Viggo Mortensen. <laughs> yeah, and it's really different. Like the aesthetic isn't that kind of 70s hippie wandering the the wilderness former ex-cop with like a head full of bad memories thing yeah it's just kind of more of an extended car chase uh but uh yeah that, that, that's an important car i think a car though that gets forgotten a lot when we talk about movie mopars there's two that i wanted to bring up one is christine which is do you think one... people forget about christine i thought that's like the I, the classic sort of but go ahead, keep going. I think it's uh, one of the better Stephen King adaptations. I just don't think people talk about it all that often. And not everyone knows what a 58 Plymouth Belvedere is anymore, mm-hmm. um, which is they actually use Belvedere's and Savoy's instead of the actual Fury it's supposed to be because it's just easier to find them. But so, uh, it's, a, it's another movie about a killer car. Uh, in this case, there's no Charlie Sheen, but it murders a lot of people. It kills a lot of people. It's a good, creepy movie. It's got a very creepy 80s vibe, thanks to John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of... I mean, there's a there's a line in 80s horror where things can get silly really quickly. And nothing about Christine is silly. It feels disturbing um, more than anything. 
And I think that's kind of a, an interesting accomplishment for a movie about about car horror because usually car horror or car thrills, it's about tension. And like the movie Duel where, you know, you're getting chased down by a truck that seems to have no driver, that kind of thing. But in, right. in Christine, it's 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 much more of a of a psychological horror show than a psychological tension show. I want to talk a little bit about the car in Christine, though, because the book in the book, it's supposed to be a, a Plymouth Fury. But in the movie, it's these other two cars, the Belvedere and the Savoy. Well, so they mentioned, it, they're just easier to find. So that's they're, that's they're easier to find. Is it easy to point out that that discrepancy, that difference? Between I'm them? sure if you're like a super big 50s Plymouth car nerd. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Um, there's also, I mean, it's, it's worth pointing out that a lot of Mopar movie stars are chargers and challengers. I mean, it's, yeah. were there any other, I mean, there's other cards to talk about, right? We're not going to talk like, about bullet. We're not going to talk about death proof because death proof is, has a charger and a challenger in it. Yeah. Maybe one of the best car chases of the modern the era. Blues brothers though. No, that's, I, I think that's the Blues not brothers, a charger or a challenger. No, it's a Monaco. I mean, the movie I think is less and less relevant as time goes on. <laughs> Yeah. But they did destroy 103 cars while filming it and drive a car through they had a car chase through a mall. Oh so I feel like that's, you know, significant. But I want to talk about the charger that no one talks about, and that's the one from Blade. You mean Wesley Snipes as Blade? Yes. That's so the Marvel the, one of the very first Marvel movies, movie adaptations. The most successful comic book movie until X-Men came along. That's awesome. Um and uh, there's, there's a couple of cool facts about the Charger they used in Blade. The reason they ended up with a 68 Charger was because they asked the the designer, the, the, the prop designer for the movie, to come up with a car that looked super evil and badass like a vampire killer would drive it. And what he sketched looked so much like a Charger. <laughs> they just <laughs> bought a Charger and they put a hood scoop on it. That's awesome. Um, I'm curious to know if the comic book character is known for having a car that looks like no, like he's this. British. He's British. I'm pretty sure Blade's British in the in the comics. I could be wrong. Really? Yeah. Let's find out. I'll ask the internet right now. Is okay. Blade <laughs> British in the comics? Um, but uh, the other cool thing about that car is when they made the second movie, they filmed it in Prague, and it had a legit 383 built big block in it, and they couldn't find fuel that would oh, that was like oh. capable of keeping the engine running, and it was a constant problem throughout the entire shoot. <laughs> That's such a small oversight would cause such a headache all the time. Like, that's so funny. Well, you know, the movie cars are often like that. Um, in Ghostbusters, the uh, Ecto-1, the hearse that they used. So Dan Aykroyd's a big car guy. And he was obsessed with this car. He was the one who decided that was the car they had to have. And he bought it, like, I think out of a junkyard or something. Sure, and it yeah. barely ran. And in the first movie, it, like, died on a, a major bridge in New York City and cost them a ton of money because they, they couldn't get it off the bridge. And they ended up blocking traffic longer than they had permits for. Okay. And it was a huge issue. <laughs> and I think Ackroyd bought the car from the movie company after the filming was done. Um, yeah, hopefully yeah. so that it never, it never causes another problem again. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, B- Blade is British, so probably didn't drive a Charger. Okay, now I want to transition to Chevys because you know, anytime we bring up you know one domestic automaker, we should probably bring up another one just to be fair. Um, and for whatever reason, we're not going to talk about Fords because that's just not on the docket today. So <laughs> let's do Chevys. I think it's important to point out that the most famous Chevys, I think, are the Transformers, uh, Bumblebee um, as the most important. Um, 
Chevy product in a movie. Am I, I wrong? I, I can't agree with that. Why? How? I, I can't agree with because Chevys have been in movies forever. I think uh, I for, first of all, American Graffiti is a no, way more significant tra- movie. It's not a Transformer than any Transformer movie. No. And the the fifty five Bel Air driven by Harrison Ford in that movie is extremely important culturally, I think. Um, but I also want to go back to another movie that's it's more like important. It's like saying Pikachu isn't as cool as Mickey Mouse or something. It's well, just... I think that's kind of a given. <laughs> <laughs> Are we really going to have that debate? Not today. <laughs> Tell, call, me when, make, call me when you're in Pikachu world. And the yeah. Pikachu tears, Pikachu tears are, are <laughs> dancing around you in the magic kingdom of Pikachu. Yeah, Pokemon World, of course. Okay, fine. So, but there are, but okay. there's, there's another movie that's also more important than Transformers called Days of Thunder. Oh, God. Where, yeah. where a man named Cole Trickle, a.k.a. Tom Cruise, drives Illumina. <laughs> And, I, uh, can I be honest? I thought this. I think this movie is awful. Do you think this movie is awful? Or I like Tony just... Scott a lot, and I think the movie has its moments. Okay, uh, but uh, I think Days. I mean, Days of Thunder was a huge movie, it and was. it's also the movie where Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman met. And I know that you're all about meat cutes. Yep. So I thought you would appreciate that. Um, but I think there's an even worse movie when it comes to Chevrolet product placement, and it's in the title of the movie Corvette Summer, which oh, starred. Mark Hamill? Yeah. <laughs> this was an awful movie. It was a terrible movie. It it stars a he he plays a high school kid who builds the world's ugliest Corvette, <laughs> which is then inexplicably stolen. Um it's, it is not just, it is so strange looking this Corvette. I know that the weird part about the, it has like that ugly nose and the weird lights and the scoops and he converts it to right-hand drive. <laughs> For no reason. No reason at all. The strangest part of the movie, though, is when he decides to move to Las Vegas because he hears that's where the car might be. I don't know, like, in 19... It was, like, 80, I think, when it came out. And I don't know what kind of, like, Corvette underground there was where people were talking about where they had seen a super ugly Corvette that got back to Mark Hamill's character somewhere. And he figured out, oh, I got to go to Vegas. He works at a car wash because he figures if he works at a car wash on the strip, he'll eventually come across his super ugly Corvette. So that's, that's like, the whole plot of the movie. Okay. Um, it turns out, though, what's funny is that, like, the car is stolen by, like, his shop teacher and sold. <laughs> And like the shop teacher is supposed to be his friend, and it's like a betrayal on top of a betrayal. Yeah, your real classic, uh, classic movie. It's your real classic like. three act Shakespearean Corvette movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what else do you have uh, on your on your on your mind when it comes to these Chevy movies? I think <laughs> I think that's it. I mean, there's Two Lane Blacktop, which has another 55 Bel Air in it, but I don't recommend watching that movie. It's super weird and it doesn't really hold up. And it was just kind of a reason for two for for a Beach Boy and a and a folk singer to make a movie together in the seventies. So it's <laughs> we, uh, sorry, go ahead. I I I didn't have anything else to say. Did we mention the Chevys in the Fast and the Furious movies? No, I don't think we need to. Oh come on, no. If we up. okay, if we do, then the big block Monte Carlo from Tokyo Drift is my favorite. Not the Yenko Camaro in Too nope. Fast, Too Furious. Nope, I have a, I so have. Weird. I love the Monte Carlo. That's my favorite body style. Of Monte Carlo, I have one on my desk right now mm-hmm. <laughs> from the movie, um, and it had its 700 horsepower. They made nine versions of the car for the movie, and I just think it's super cool. It's like a super weird car. It's it's not a standard muscle car, right? And it was fun to see that in the movie in a performance context, even if it somehow beats a Viper in a race. 
And yeah. it drives through a house. It drove through a, a, a it was an unfinished house. Let's be clear here. It's still under construction. I think the jump, the flying Camaro in Too Fast, Too Furious that jumps onto a boat is the one that we should be that we remember. I mean, that, that's uh, that's like I'm trying to remember when I I think the Fast and the Furious movies like really jumped the shark in in the fifth episode, but then it turns out maybe if you rewatch them all, the second was just as bad as all. No, of the second them. one is great. What do you say? The second <laughs> it, one is, is wild. The second the the, the only the first three matter because only the first three are about car culture that's my right opinion. yes that's true um and we, we skipped on like red dawn and well, we red talked dawn. about red dawn a few weeks ago a few weeks ago and uh what are we not talking about red dawn? <laughs> what are we not talking? so i okay i i mean i love it when we talk movies and pop culture it's one of my favorite like uh tangents that we do on the show because it's cool because cars just they find a way to to fill in the gaps in so much of our lives, and I think you know when when a movie really casts the car really nicely, it becomes um, memorable in a way. And I'm always looking for something to fill the big aching gap inside of me. So if cars can do that for a few minutes, I'm all for it. <laughs> all right, I want to talk to you about uh, a new a new vehicle that debuted um, just about a week ago from Acura. You know our our well, I mean I don't want to rank them, but it's Acura is pretty. Mid tier when it comes to the luxury. That is generous. (laughs) Okay, sorry. Well, we're being mean, but we should talk about the new 2021 Acura TLX, which uh, debuted. It will feature a. uh, It'll. It will come standard with a two-liter turbo. It will be offered with a twin. I think a twin turbo V6. It. um, I think it'll have super handling all-wheel drive, which is pretty cool. And uh, people are really uh, excited about this thing, and I'm Ben. I'm. A, I mean, I think it's it's a good looking car, but I'm not sure that uh, it's you know Acura's you know return to sports sedans as some people might be promising it would be. I think that there's a whole lot of hype being blown around about this car right now that no one has driven, and I've I've read a lot of people saying, oh, you know, like you just said, it's kind of like Acura's back in the sports sedan world. You know, we all thought that when the Q50 happened from Infinity, and it mm-hmm. turned out that the Q50 is very comfortable and very fast, but it's not at all sporty, and yeah. I, I feel like those are two different things, Sammy. Okay, so I mean, the the Acura will come, this TLX will come, will feature an A spec like uh, perform, uh, sorry, package like. Um, exterior package and there's also going to be a type s version of the car which will be the really powerful uh three liter turbo charged six cylinder um and you know people are really excited that it'll have that uh double wishbone suspension as well i don't know like i'm it also uses brakes from the nsx i'm i mean i can't remember if the brakes were the really important part of the nsx experience or not (laughs) it's hard to tell in a hybrid (laughs) (laughs) i'm i'm with you on a couple of things yes the Infinity Q50 was supposed to be that like prototypical Japanese sports sedan, but then when it came out, it turned out it was just very fast, very comfortable, and really pretty. Um, it just really wasn't an enthusiast sports car, a sports sedan, it, and I think that makes a lot of sense. I think the mainstream luxury car buyers, you know, equate speed as sportiness, and that's not what like sports car buyers really think, right? No, and and um, another thing that kind of bothers me about the TLX is so the the turbocharged four cylinder they released the power for it. Mm-hmm. I think they said it's it's like what two hundred and eighty or something like that, Sammy. Let me double check for you. I think that's right. 
And it, it's it's a huge improvement. It's something like 66 more horsepower and 100 pound-feet of torque more than the car that it's replacing. Sorry, 272 horsepower 272. And, two, and 280 pound-feet of torque. But they won't release any numbers about the V6. They're being really right. coy about it. They're saying it's going to have more than the car that it came before. I would hope so because that car had, what, 290. 290. Yeah. So, and they're saying it'll have more than 300 horsepower. If this car doesn't have 400 horsepower from a twin turbo 3 liter V6, that's a problem for Acura. And I'm, I'm almost convinced it will not have 400 horsepower. I don't think it'll have 400. I don't, I don't, that, I mean, so, level. so now it's, so you're saying that here's a car that won't be able to match the Q50 in terms of performance. No, I don't think so. And I think it's also worth pointing out the Q50 feels very fast for a car with 400 horsepower. So it's, it's, it's why, why build this? I mean, I'm obviously I'm criticizing something that hasn't happened yet. I'm being guilty mm-hmm. of the people who haven't driven it who are deifying the car. But why set yourself up for failure when it's so easy to have that much power in the modern era? I'm also confused about the significance of the TLX. I I thought, you know, especially for an automaker that's struggling to make an impact on buyers, that another cross, I I don't want another crossover, but I think if they really want to show what they're capable of, they want to excel in the crossover market, that might be the way they're doing it. But I think by going by going to a sedan, they're trying to to showcase that they care about the enthusiasts. But sedans aren't like, I mean, yes, they're sportier than crossovers. But if you want to, like, if you want to really impress us, make something that is sporty and maybe a two door or maybe has a manual or something like that. Right. Like if you really I, want to go back to the, back to the actor that we all remember and love, that might be the way to get there. I can't wait until Acura combines all of their sedans into one model. So uh, we, <laughs> so we have like the TLR, TLR LX, um, because I mean, remember they make a full size sedan that nobody buys the RLX, the RLX. And when you say go back to the Acura that we all love, I mean, what does that mean? Does it mean go back to the nineties? That was the 30, Integra. It was like years ago. I, I, we can't really be like, Oh, I can't wait for Acura to get in touch with its roots. I mean, that would yeah, be like, like a generation ex- ago, I guess. Yeah, yeah. it's just not going to happen. Um, it's I don't know. Like, there's also there was also a really small moment in the early 2000s, I think, with the TL and the TSX, where it was kind of it was kind of possible to see Acura just doing a transition from really sporty uh, cars to one vehicles that were still engaging to drive and cool, but also premium. I just, you know, I, I just, right now, I, they're I, kind of like, they're kind of like the sub-Japanese Buick. And, like, Buick makes some pretty cool cars. And Acura, I don't think, is at Buick's level, except for the MDX. And I think that's not a great place to be. I, I don't understand that type of brand positioning. And, I mean, what... One of the complaints that we had with uh, the recent Acuras was that infotainment system with the touchpad... That still hasn't been addressed, right? That's still and the fact that in the middle of the dash is the is a giant dial which looks like a volume knob, but is actually the drive mode selector. Yeah, I, you know, that? I that, I want to drive happens. this. I want to drive this car, and I want it to be good. I'm not hopeful because it's been a long time since I've been impressed by Acura. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's just kind of sad that this is what they've become. Okay, hold up. The RDX was not a bad car to drive. It just wasn't. It, there there are is- significant issues with it. Though. Yeah, there's there's nothing about the RDX where I would say you should buy this over X. You know, yeah. it, it's not something I would recommend over any other vehicle really in its segment. It just had some teething issues. I think that could be could be fixed. At I mean, that infotainment system, if that was solved, I would be able to overlook a lot of the car, and I, it's easy to recommend. And I do really like the MDX Sport Hybrid. I think that's a that's a fun vehicle. 
It's a good car. Absolutely. So, um, um, we, yeah, go ahead. Well, just talking about fun vehicles, we, we talked last week about Nissan quite a bit and uh, yep. with, with Chad. Chad Kirchner when he was on the show and we asked anyone out there if they had any experience with the Z car specifically um, to write in and uh, you know kind of give their opinion on where they thought the car was going with these announcements Nissan has, has been making or not necessarily the announcement but the images that we've seen of the car I mean I'm a Z owner but from a very long time ago so it's kind of a different thing but mm-hmm. um, longtime listener and friend of the show Blake wrote into us he's owned several uh, Z cars. He's owned two 350Zs and a 370Z. Wow. And so he is actively in the market for a new version of the Z or a new sports car. And he says uh, he hopes for him personally, he's looking to, for it to be around the same price point as the BRZ in the 86. And he would like it to stay away from the, the, the Supra and the C8 if possible. And uh, he wants it to look as close to the 240Z as possible. Because he likes his 370Z in terms of being a half-decent modern interpretation of those elements. Um, interestingly, he suggested taking the 4-liter V6 from the Frontier with better tuning would be cool in the car. Or having the 5.6-liter V8 from the Titan as a top tier. Wow. But he doesn't think that will ever happen. So it's probably going to be a 3-liter to a turbo um, from Infinity, like like we had discussed. He also that's an interesting viewpoint from a Z owner because I always found that the Z um, straddles the line behind between having a lot of power for a sports car and also being really um, sporty and fun to drive. Sometimes with a car that has a, a big motor up front, that's all that the car's kind of priority is is to go really quick when when the road straightens out. But I also found the Z to be pretty good around curves as well, um, and I would think that. That was that was kind of like a personality trait that would be um, inherent to the, the the Z family. Well, he had a couple of other details that kind of speak to that oh, a little okay. bit. He said that he wants it to have an LSD because you can't get it can't get that in the Red Sport Q, Q60, which is kind of right. Weird. I think it has um, an electronic. Uh, yeah, it has a. It, he says he wants a, a torsion based LSD, not an electronic VLSD like they had in past C models and he also said a fake manual is 100% a milkshake of, with water <laughs> so uh, manual or no sale for him he also has a question Sammy um, when are you going to trade your uh, <laughs> BRZ FT86 for a Nissan Kicks because, a Nissan Kicks? Yeah. because you love it so much you love that twist beam hauler so much and I think Blake's probably not the only one in our audience who wonders why you don't own a Kicks at this point. I don't need a Kicks, first of all, and I don't know if I'm the market for it. I do like the Kicks. I think it's a perfect car for its demographic, but I don't think I'm in the need of in the need of those services of a Kicks. I, I think a Kicks versus your Outback, Sammy. Yeah, that would be a really good because I I actually the only problem with my that I like with my Outback is it's got a manual and it's extremely spacious and and it's got all wheel drive and the Kicks doesn't have those two really important factors. Um, which I was, I'd be looking for. But if I was looking for uh, something really affordable, kind of, I don't want to call the kicks disposable, but it definitely, I think that's the best way to describe it. It's something that I could guilt-free purchase and uh, and use all the time, and that would fill the bill in that regard. Well, um, in terms of something guilt-free that you can do at home that's unrelated to the kicks, you could visit unnamedautomotivepodcast.com and you could subscribe to our podcast and listen to us every week. Or you could go back and listen to all of our old podcasts. We're almost up to 200 episodes now. So there's a lot of nonsense and weird things that have been said that you could revisit or visit for the first time if this is your first time listening to us today. Um, at Unnamed Automotive Podcast, you can uh, also find us on all of the 
major podcast networks. So Spotify, Google, um, Apple Podcasts, we are everywhere. We have subscription buttons for you there, or you can search for us inside your own favorite podcatcher. Very cool. And additionally, when you're at our, when you go to our website, you can really easily get in touch with us. There's a contact form there. You fill that out. It lands in our inbox. Or if you want to, you know, fill out the two fields yourself in a, in an email, you just go, you just type in Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com and that'll do the trick. Uh, another way you can get in touch with us is through social media. Ben and I are both on social media. You can find Ben uh, on Instagram. He's at HuntingBenjamin. And you can find me on Twitter uh, assuming that hasn't burnt to the ground by the time this has been published. Uh, I'm at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. And next week, Sammy, uh, I actually am going to be dipping my toes back into the world of press cars, and we'll have a new vehicle to talk about, the 2020 Ram Rebel Eco Diesel, which is something I had scheduled earlier in the year, but it was postponed until now, and I'm looking forward to driving it. Very cool. I'm looking forward to that as well. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye.